All right. Good morning, familia. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Hannibal, and I want to welcome you all again. Thanks for being part of WBC this morning, Witten Bible Church, whether you are here worshiping in person or you're worshiping with us online. Today, we are starting part four in our journey through the Gospel of Matthew, and that's why you can see a new icon on the wall, um, and you saw a new icon on the screen. And this is part of the reason, if you didn't notice, we have a new sticker with the new icon so you could place it on your journal for those of you that have your journal. If you don't have a journal and you want to get a hold of one, you could stop by the welcoming desk and not only you could get a journal there, but you could get a sticker. Um, and I'm talking about the journal for a second. If you have one, you prob probably noticed that inside there is a QR code. Uh, inside in many parts of that. And part of the reason why we have that there is so you, for you to scan it. And that will take you to our website. And there's a page dedicated for the Gospel of Matthew. And there you find the sermons. You find the journals. You find extra resources that we have put together to help you in your growth uh, of, the, of your understanding of the Gospel of Matthew. So you might want to take advantage of that. The text we read today, I would say, is a very relevant text for, for all of us. Whether you are a Christian or a seeker or a skeptic or even a non-Christian altogether, um, I think that that passage speaks to all of us at the same time. And part of the reason why I say that is because that passage talks about doubt. The doubt that all people experience, including believers. Now, I know that there is a popular idea out there by some believers that think that if you are a Christian, you should not doubt. Actually, if you doubt and you're surrounded by this group of people, they would say, shh, 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 don't say anything. Because doubt is against your faith. And I would say, in all respect, you are so wrong. That is not what the Bible talks about. Actually, the Bible is going to make it extremely clear that everyone doubts, including Christians, including the very people that believed 100% in Jesus, or let's say 90% in Jesus. So these are the things that we're going to talk about today. I'm going to call you, as much as I can, to embrace your doubts, to doubt your doubts, and to crucify your doubts. Embrace them, doubt them. And crucify them. Ready? All right. Let's go with the first point. Embrace your doubts. Let me start by making a statement. I don't think that doubts are necessarily a bad thing. I'm going to make an argument here that doubts are not necessarily a bad thing. And I want to give you two reasons. Reason number one is because doubt is part of what it means, not just what it means to be a Christian, but what it means to be a human being. But before I jump into that one, let me, let me press a little bit. If you are a believer and you think that doubt is something, that there's something, doubt with wrong, uh, there's something wrong with being with doubt. I think that if you are a faithful follower of Jesus, hear me out, church, okay? And don't be offended by it. But you know that when I say don't be offended by it, it's because I want you to be offended by that. <laughs> Even though I wouldn't say it. I'm just trying to be polite. If you are a Bible-believing person and you read the Bible... You should feel offended every now and then. And you should experience doubt every now and then. Because unless you are Jesus, there are things there that are so hard to believe. 
So either you're not reading the Bible, or you're reading and not meditating, or you're just a liar. Because it's impossible to go through the Bible and hear the things that God says and every now and then and say, man, that's, that's hard to believe. You know, I've been a Christian for 20-something years, and every year I grab a different Bible, and I'm, I'm one of those highlighters and circle things and stuff like that. And every Bible I've read through the years, you open up somewhere, and you will always find a question mark somewhere in which I say, man, this one, I, I don't understand this one, Right? I think that that's part of what it means to be a Christian. And that's part of what it means to be a human being. But the reason why I think that there's, this is not necessarily bad is because the best heroes of the faith in the Bible are people that also experience doubt. Among them, John the Baptist. So before, before I dig into the text, I, I want to give you a little bit of background because I think that you need to understand who John the Baptist is and the things he proclaimed before the text we read today. Now, if you have been walking with us through this journey, you probably remember in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist was the one that called people to repent because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. I was talking about Jesus. Repent, repent, repent. It's the same John the Baptist that called people to get baptized for repentance, but then he said that after him... They will be one that will be more powerful than him, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he said. Something tells me that he really believes in Jesus. Later on, he says, when he says Jesus, he says, I can baptize you. I should be baptized by you. I, something tells me that John believed in Jesus. It's the same John that when Jesus getting baptized, he sees the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus, and he hears the words of the Father saying from heaven, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. That's John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3. Do you know why John the Baptist is called John the Baptist? It's because he was the one that baptized Jesus. He's not a regular guy, I hope you know. He's no Hannibal. He's John the Baptist. That's Matthew chapter 3. But then we get to Matthew chapter 11. And Matthew chapter 11, we find John the Baptist in prison. And this is crazy because he's in prison for being faithful. He's not in prison because he was a sinful human being. He's not in, in prison because he betrayed God. He's actually in prison because he, betrayed, he was faithful to God and was um, confronting immorality. And that's why he got in prison. And now that he's suffering, and now that he's in prison, look at what he says in verse 2. Or the text says in verse 2. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah... He sent his disciples, verse 3, to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Don't you find that weird? At least awkward? This is the same guy that was preaching the things he preached in Matthew chapter 3. What do you mean, are you the one that is to come? What do you mean, should we expect somebody else? Did you notice? If you're not the real one, man, I got to find another one. Now, there's a couple of things that I want you to learn just from that first alone that I don't think you can miss. 
The first thing that I want you to see from that verse alone, or those verses alone, is that doubt comes in the midst of pain. That pain invites doubt. And doubt in the midst of pain reveals true beliefs. See, John believed in the Jesus of Matthew chapter 3. See, John believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah in the Old Testament. But now that he's struggling, he's got questions. Now that he's struggling, he's got 20,000 questions. Are you the one that was supposed to be here? Are you, or should we expect somebody else? Actually, part of the reason why I say that doubts and suffering make you ask questions, and those questions reveal beliefs, is because in his head, he already had a preconception of what the Messiah was supposed to be. See, he knows, like a good student of the Old Testament, that the Messiah was supposed to come to save his people, to deliver his people, right? To be a, a Messiah of judgment, a Messiah of love, but also a Messiah of judgment. And here he sees Jesus loving people, forgiving the enemy, healing the sick, and the guy is in prison for being faithful. So if I was John, I would, I would ask the same questions. This doesn't make any sense. Where is the judgment? And the second thing that I want you to see is not only that pain invites doubt and doubt reveals what we really believe, but also we go through the same thing that John goes through. That if the Jesus of the Messiah we have in our head does not match the real Messiah, the tendency and the inclination is to look for another Messiah. Did you notice how he said? If you're not the one, I have to find another one. Is there someone else? Should we expect someone else? You see, this is why even though, even though doubt is not a bad thing, I'll explain why I'm saying that in a second, I actually think that you have to be super careful with your doubts. I think that you have to embrace your doubts because they, they tell you something about what you truly believe. But you also got to be careful with your doubts because if you, don't do, if you don't process them right, not only if you don't process them right, the tendency or the temptation is to look for another Messiah somewhere else. This is part of the reason why, in my opinion, when some believers struggle and Jesus is not behaving the way you want him to behave, we tend to messiahify other things. I, I just made that word up. No, actually, no. I borrowed them for somebody else. So if it's bad grammar, blame it on the other guy. <laughs> I think that this is part of the reason why we have, we have this tendency to messiahify our work and our career because Jesus didn't give you what you wanted. I think that this is part of the reason why we have this tendency to messiahify romantic love on a person or two. I think that this is part of the reason why we have this tendency to messiahify friends and relationships. We have the tendency to messiahify positions and titles and recognition and influence. We have the tendency to messiahify almost anything. If Jesus, the one we have in our head, does not match the real Jesus. Now, you would say, well, John is really struggling here. And I would say, yes. But what I want you to see, though, is that Jesus does not rebuke him. See, if he was a modern-day Christian, they would say to John, how dare you say that? 
What is interesting is that we don't have Jesus talking to John and saying, how dare you questioning me? He doesn't say, what happened to the Matthew chapter 3, John? He doesn't say any of that. Actually, I'm going to show you in a second that he, he actually elevates John in the midst of his struggle. But if there's one thing that we can learn from John, is that he embraces doubts, but this is what made the difference with John. He takes his doubts to Jesus. He takes his struggle and goes to Jesus. And I would say that would be the radical difference between John and everyone that came after him and some modern-day Christians or some modern-day people. This is what some modern-day Christians and some modern-day people do when they struggle with Christianity. We don't get into the Word. We don't seek for answers. We don't talk to faithful Christians. We don't look at the history of the world and the history of Christianity. You know what we do? We go to the Internet because it's completely reliable. And we look in social media and we hang around with the people that believe the same thing that we believe. And we talk to people and you say, don't you think that Jesus is phony? And the people say, I think he's phony. But that's not what he does. He's doubting, man. His doubt is real. He loves Jesus, but the Jesus he has in his head does not match the, does not match the Jesus he has right now. But instead of going somewhere else, instead of talking and creating theories in his head, he goes to the one that could answer his questions. And Jesus does not rebuke him. Interesting that Jesus, not even right away, corrects his thinking. Now, I think that you and I have to pay attention to that because... If there's one principle that we got to learn from Scripture is that whatever we have in our heads, that's what we love. Whatever thoughts you have about Jesus, that's what you love. Whatever thoughts you, you don't have about Jesus, that's, what, that's where you struggle. So the question is, why is it that Jesus does not rebuke him? Why is it that Jesus at that moment is not correcting his, his doubts? He will do it later on in a second. But I think that part of the reason why Jesus is not doing that is because Jesus knows what it means to be a human being. This is part of what it means to be a human being. This is part of what it means to be a human being that happens to be Christian. See, Jesus in his humanity actually showed us that that's what it means to be a human being. You remember Jesus right before he goes to the cross? He's asking questions in his humanity, not in his divinity, but in his humanity. He's struggling with what is about to come. Father, if it's possible that this cup will be away from me, but not my will, but your will. He's struggling as a human being. Even when he's knelt at the cross, he says, why have you forsaken me? He's asking questions. The difference between John the Baptist and Jesus is that John the Baptist has... Um, a fragmented uh, understanding of Jesus, and Jesus is perfect even in his questions. Because Jesus is sinless, and Jesus knows the Father, so he's not doubting God, he's being a human being. 
And if there's one thing that I want you to remember today, is that even if you are a hardcore believer, you have permission to struggle with your doubts. You just got to go to him. Uh, if you're doing our Bible reading plan as a church, this week we're reading, uh, we have been reading in Psalms, and actually there's like two, three Psalms. We're reading a section in the book of Psalms that is called Lamentations. It's lamenting, right? Not Lamentations book, but lamenting Psalms. And there is, I, I don't know how quick you read your Bible, but if you read this week, Psalm 39, right at the end of Psalm 39, there is something that King David, the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus, there's something he said that he made me shake. Look at what he says to God. Look away from me that I may enjoy life again before I depart. I am not an am and I am no more. You know what that means? He's looking and God, to God Almighty, the powerful and eternal God. And he says, would you give me a break? Don't look at me. Give me a break so I could die. Actually, I enjoy life. Who says that? God's people. You know what's the difference between David and John the Baptist and maybe many of us? That they did go to God in their doubt. Actually, Derek Kittner, which is a Bible commentator from the book of Psalms, he says, The very presence of such prayers in the scripture is a witness to God's understanding, he knows how men speak when they are desperate. He knows. He knows how we struggle. He knows that in our limited humanity, we will doubt. He knows what it means to be a Christian in a struggling world. Now, one beautiful thing you see in the text is that Jesus, instead of rebuking John publicly and saying, how dare you all of this, he looks at the people that are hearing all of this and he elevates John. Because John is going to him. Look at what it says in verse 9. Then what did you go out to see? He says to the people, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, I'm more than a prophet. Verse 11. Truly I tell you, among those born a woman, there has not risen Anyone greater than John the Baptist. Man, I don't know if you can see that, but that's an endorsement. That's an endorsement to doubter John. That's an endorsement with someone that is struggling with their faith. But that he's still going to Jesus. I would say that that's the difference between a Christian doubter and a doubter-doubter. Because see, John in his struggle, he's still going to Jesus, seeking for answers, wanting to find answers. But a doubter-doubter without Jesus, first of all, they don't seek for answers. And if they do, they're seeking for answers, and yet they don't want to believe. This is when understanding and faith comes together, you see? You go seeking for answers in faith, seeking to find answers, or you go seeking for answers not wanting to find answers. 
It's almost like this. Like when I'm having an argument with Heidi, right? And she thinks she's right. In this argument, I have two options. I could speak to her, seeking to understand her, or I can speak to her and in my head thinking, it doesn't matter what you say, I don't care what you say. I will be divorced by now. But that's the difference. And Jesus is going to make a distinction between John the Baptist and the generation that really don't care about believing. Look at how he says it in verse 16. To what can I compare this generation? Verse 17, we play the pipe for you and you did not dance. We play happy songs for you and you didn't dance. We sang uh, a dirge, a sad song, and you did not mourn. And then he said this, verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. In other words, John came and did what he was supposed to do, and you didn't believe. And in verse 19, he says, And the Son of Man, Jesus, comes eating and drinking, and they say he's a glutton, a drunkard, and a, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So it really didn't matter if it was John or Jesus. It didn't really matter what kind of song they sang or the sermon they preached. If you don't want to believe, you won't believe. This is when reason and faith comes together, you know? Our faith is a thinking faith. Our faith is a thinking faith. The difference is what you do with your doubt. As John the Baptist embraced his doubt and went to Jesus, and this generation embraced their doubt and did not care about answers. You know what I'm praying for? I'm praying for that the Lord gives us a church in which the skeptic has, finds a place in this church so we could wrestle together. But I'm praying that if you're a Christian, also you find in this church answers for your doubts, at least that we wrestle together. So the question that we got to ask is, how do we deal then with our doubts? If doubt is part of what it means to be a human being, if doubt is even part of what it means to be a Christian, and doubt, and Jesus understands, and all of that stuff, then how do we deal with our doubts? Because you're not supposed to stay there. Point number two, you got to learn how to doubt your doubts. Now, you remember how I told you that part of John's problem is that he had preconceptions about Jesus, he had decided already in his head what Jesus is supposed to be. So when Jesus comes doing something different, he's struggling. I want to make the argument that the root of all doubt is that we have preconceptions. Let me say it again, church. The root of all doubt is that we have preconceptions. And do you know where, this is not even in the note, so it has to be from the Holy Spirit, Okay. And do you know where preconceptions come from? From your own experiences, from your own emotions, from your own understanding, from your own life, from your own traditions. Meaning that every single one of us approach the Bible with a set of lenses already. This is why sometimes you and I could be reading the same text and have completely different conclusions. No one comes to the Bible neutral. No one. Your ethnicity shapes the way you read the Bible. Your experience shapes the way you read the Bible. Your suffering reads, uh, uh, dictates how you read the Bible. Your whole being dictates how you read the Bible. That's where doubt comes. 
Our job as Christians is to learn how to take those out and put the right ones in. How do we do that? Number one, you have to recognize that Jesus is offensive. Don't, don't tell me that everything that Jesus says is, yay! That's not true. You know how I know that? Look at verse 6. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. You know what the word stumble there means? Happy is someone who is not offended by me. And you would say, if you're a Christian like that, I never get offended by Jesus. I think that, every, that Jesus is good, and I think that Jesus is true. And everything he asks of me, I take. And I'm like, really? <laughs> Let's talk about the Sermon on the Mount just for a second. Because if by now you haven't been offended by Jesus, you're not reading your Bible. And you're not listening to the sermons either. Let's just grab a fraction of the Sermon on the Mount. Because unless you recognize that you have certain, a set of lenses, you will never be able to how to deal with your doubts. So, for example, Jesus says, if you hate a person, it's the same thing, or if you're angry with a person, and just with, with no reason whatsoever, or with some reasons, it's the same heart of a person that just killed a person. And you're like, no, it's not. And what Jesus would say, yes, it is. You know why? Because the behavior is different, but the heart is the same. You know what's the difference between a murderer and a hater? That the murderer acts on it. And the hater says, man, I wish that this person didn't exist. It's the same heart. So Jesus says, you're just as bad as, bad as someone that took somebody else's life. You should be offended by that. Let's talk about... Desiring someone that is not your spouse. In the, midst of a, in the midst of a visual world, the way you look at another person that is not your spouse tells you that you're a cheater. And you're like, what? I was just looking. And Jesus says, when you look at a person and you desire that person in your heart, you committed adultery. And you would say, I did not desire, I just looked. And Jesus says, you're such a liar. <laughs> you know how you know that you're desiring? Because of the amount of time that you stay looking. I'm not saying just looking and looking and looking. It's when you're like looking. <laughs> Isn't that true when you go to the store? You can look at something and you like it, and you say, well, that's nice, and you move on. But when you say, well, that's nice, nice, that's your heart. What about loving your enemies? <laughs> Jesus says, love your enemies, and we say, which ones? <laughs> and Jesus says, Love the ones that crucify you. And we say, that's not fair, Jesus. 
You don't know what they said to me. You don't know what they did to me. You don't know how I suffered the consequences of their sin. How do you dare call me to love my enemies? And Jesus says, yeah, love them. Blessed is the one that is not offended by me. The root of all of our doubts is because we have problems with Jesus. Question. How do we fight that? See, I believe that the Bible makes a case that we are all saints and sinners at the same time. Meaning that we truly love Jesus and want to live for Jesus, the Christians. But at the same time, we're still sinful. So how do we fight our doubts? And this is where verse 12 is going to help us. Look at what it says. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence. And violent people have been raiding it. So on the last part of that verse, the first part, when it talks about subjected to violence, I think that Jesus is talking about what we talked about last week. That if you're a believer living in a broken world, you're supposed to expect persecution and rejection and betrayal. That's what it means to live in the kingdom of God in a broken world. Anything less than that, you are fooling yourself. That's what I think Jesus is saying there. He's making reference to something that he just said in Matthew chapter 10. But the second part is the one that I really want to pay attention to. Because he says that the violent people have been raiding it. Another way to translate the word raiding it is they take it by force. And it seems to me, by the way, scholars disagree on the interpretation of that one. So as a preacher, I have to take one interpretation. I think that what Jesus is saying there is that even though we live in this broken world as Christians in which you ought to, be, you ought to expect to be persecuted and rejected and betrayed... The way you deal with that is by becoming, now be careful with what I'm going to say. Just let me finish the thought. The way you deal with this is by being more violent than these people. And you would say, yes, finally. <laughs> and I would say, hold on a second. The violence that Jesus is talking about here cannot mean something that has to do with anger. I just told you something about anger. It cannot be about seeking vengeance because the Lord already told you, if someone hits you here, put the other one. So what Jesus is talking about here has to be something completely different. Remember that the topic here is doubt. This is what I think Jesus is doing. In the midst of this broken world, the way you fight your doubts because of this suffering is by being more violent in the way we approach him. We have to force ourselves even more in the way we approach him. If the solution for our doubts is to go to him, we have to be even more violent on how we pursue him. Listen. I think that this is what Jesus tells John. You remember, John says, are you the one who is to come or should we expect somebody else? Look at how Jesus responds to him. Verse 4. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. 
The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. You know what Jesus is saying there? He is helping John remember what the prophets had already said about Jesus. If you read Isaiah chapter 35 or Isaiah chapter 61, you will see that that's the description of the Messiah. So as John is struggling with his doubt, Jesus is saying the way you're going to fight your doubt is by remembering, meditating, embracing what the Bible had already said about me. He says, fight with your thoughts and fight for your thoughts. Pursue God with violence. Not wimpy violence. But fight with your thoughts. And fight for your thoughts. Let, uh, let me make a statement. The more the world continues to be and become more and more hostile to Christianity, the more you're going to have to be fighting for your faith in your heart. The more digging into the scriptures and asking and memorizing and having conversations, the more you're going to have to be there. You know, every now and then in my spiritual journey, my walk with the Lord, there are, there are weeks, man, that it's just way too much. You know, Paul talks about fears from outside and fears from within. Recently, I've been going through some season like that simply because that's how life is. And if you want to see how strong my faith is in Jesus... Let me create a visual of what I look like as a person of faith in the morning when I'm struggling. I wish I could tell you that I get up in the morning and I'm like, yes, Bible time. <laughs> That's not me whatsoever. I'm like, oh my goodness. Lord, speak to me. That is what violent faith looks like to me. I don't have the power nor the energy. I don't have what it takes. It is much easier for me to distract myself. It is much easier for me to eat a lot. It is much easier for me to go to the gym and burn a ton of calories. It is much easier for me to watch Netflix for four hours. It is much easier for me to talk smack about the people that I'm struggling with. It is much easier for me to do all of that stuff than to fight for my soul and to fight for my heart. But that is the only way I could fight my doubt. I will make the same argument about prayer. It is much easier for you to try to fix your problems than to pray. It is much easier for you to pretend that nothing is happening than to pray. It is much easier to talk than to pray. I will make the same argument for community. It is much easier to pretend that nothing is happening than to pray. It is much easier to not come to church or join a group or be part of a community than to, than to join a community. 
It is much easier to do almost anything than to fight with your thoughts and for your thoughts. Church, we will not make it. In the midst of this changing culture and society, we must be better, stronger Christians. Better, and, thank you, brother. Better and stronger Christians. Fight with and for your soul. There is no room for this nominal Christianity, religious Christianity, comfortable Christianity, consumeristic Christianity. There's no reason why to fear. You know that we're going through, that's nothing compared to the, what the first century church went through. You know, when every now and then someone says, well, this is the worst time in the world. You, have you ever read the Bible? <laughs> like, you still have your head. You know, that's a, that's a good thing. You don't see lions chasing you, do you? A pet, your dog might chase you, and that's about it. The Lord that was with them is the same Lord that we have today. The Lord that we hope for back then is the same word, Lord, that we hope on today. But it doesn't mean that you're not going to doubt, and it doesn't mean that you don't have to fight with violence for your heart and your mind and your thoughts. I think, I don't know if we're going to be like John. I don't know if we're going to be in prison, but this I know. What he learned is the same thing that we learned today. How about if I tell you that we have something even better than what John had? How about if I tell you that we have a better tool than the one John had? Because John knew about the Messiah in the Old Testament. But we know about the Messiah in the New Testament. The Messiah that went to the cross to die and resurrect. Point number three, we got to learn how to crucify our thoughts. Verse 11 says this, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet... Whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You know who are the least of this? Anyone that came to believe in Jesus after the cross. See, let me, let me paint the picture to you. The Jesus we have is the Jesus that we know is a Jesus of love, healing, mercy, and compassion. Why? Because he went to the cross. But it's the same Jesus that we know that was willing to doubt for, die for the doubter. If you don't think that you have a reason to believe, you have to look at the cross. If you don't think that you have something powerful to fight against your doubt, you have to look at the cross. See, the Jesus we have is the Jesus that John didn't have just yet, in which we have a Jesus that goes to the cross to love you violently, to show you violent love. What it means to feel that you got to run and yet choose to love. You know what it means to have Jesus right before the cross asking the Father to take this cross from him and to say, not my will but your will. Do you know why that prayer is there? So we know that Jesus had an answer, that Jesus had an option. He could have run away. And he forced himself to the cross. Why? For you. For me. Let me, let, let me share with you how the Lord speaks to me. Two months ago, I was watching the last movie of Top Gun. 
No, what do you mean preach? That's not the word, but I'm going to preach. Anyway. Last scene, of almost one of the last scenes, Tom Cruise is having a conversation with someone, and he's supposed to go on this mission that is going to be crazy dangerous. And his friend tells him, do you know what's going to happen to you if you go there? And Tom Cruise responds, yes, but I also know what's going to happen to them if I don't go there. And I'm sitting there and I'm saying, that would be something that Jesus would say. So imagine, this is not true, but imagine Jesus having a conversation with the devil. Right before he goes to the cross. Right before he's asking the father, right when he's asking the father to take this cross away from him. And the devil tells him, you know what's going to happen to you if you go to the cross. And Jesus looks at him and says, do you know what's going to happen to them if I don't go to the cross? That's why we have reasons to crucify our doubts. Let's pray. My beautiful Savior, we are grateful that we get permission, Lord, to struggle in our faith or with our faith. But at the same time, Lord, you call us to go to you, to wrestle with you, to reason with you, the Bible says. Lord, for those of us that are believers already, please help us do that by the power of the Spirit. To fight with our thoughts and to fight for our thoughts. Please do that. Convince us of how good and powerful and merciful you are. And the church says...